Thank you, guys. Well, this is a psalm written by David in the, after this massive moment of regret. Uh, the story behind this psalm is dark. It's, it's one that reads more like a Hollywood movie, you know, than it does of the story about David who writes half of the psalms, right? This is a story of sin, and uh, it's a story about brokenness and regret. It's a story about the God's mercy. And so today, what I've decided we're going to do is we're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, sin, <laughs> right? And here's what we're going to do. We're gonna make, I thought this would be a very powerful experience. I'm going to pass a mic down the aisle, and you guys are going <laughs> to all share the deepest, darkest sin you've ever, yeah. No, no, maybe not. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, so we are in week three of a few psalms that we're doing. We're doing six out of 150. That's like three or four percent. So we're not doing much, but we are covering really the heart behind it. So when you read them, you can, uh, you can glean from them and kind of maybe think about them in new ways. And we've talked about how these are deeply human expressions about the declaration and proclamation that God is king. And uh, to begin, I want to do a bit of drawing for us. Is that okay? I haven't done this in a while. Um, see, yes, we're up, and, we're up and going. So just a point of reference, I have been called the Picasso of preaching. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I want to tell you a story as I kind of draw. Um, there's this uh, story about a, a woman that had a big question about life. And she had this question, it was one that we've all had, it was kind of the epic question of who am I, you know? And so she comes to this, this, this hill and she decides, you know, I need to start climbing this hill and I need to discover this deep, dark question that I have. And she finds, she goes up the hill a little ways and she finds this cave. And inside the cave is, is, is a guru, right? And the guru's in there and she comes up to the guru and says, excuse me, guru, uh, but can you help me? I have this really big question about uh, my own self. And she's like, well, well, sure, how can I help you? And, and she says, well, who am I? That's my question I've been trying to figure out the answer to. And the guru kind of tilts the head and says, ah, are you kidding me? This is, this is like the question, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is the question of all questions. I mean, I, I, it's way above my pay grade. I cannot answer this question. But if you go up the hill a little higher, maybe someone can help you. So she climbs up the hill a little higher, and she comes to a place, and she's a, she sees a monk, and the monk is there, is there uh, meditating, as they do, you know? And so she interrupts the monk and says, excuse me, sir, but I have a question, and I was hoping that you could help me. I've been on a journey to find out come to sort of a question about my life. Who am I? And the monk sort of says, wow, that's a, that's a really big question just to ask, you know, a monk, I guess. And so the monk says, I don't think I can answer this question again. I, it, it's just a really kind of beyond my abilities to understand such a deep question. So he says, but if you go up the hill a little higher, maybe there's someone there that can help you. So she goes up higher, but this time to get to the next place where this mystic is, this teacher it was a day's journey. And it's no longer a hill, it's become a mountain. And she's, at, she's climbing up the mountain. She gets to this mystic, goes in, the mystic's sitting there all teacher-esque, you know, candles burning, all that sort of stuff. She says, teacher, teacher, oh mystic person, would you please answer this question that I have about my life? She says, well, of course, I'll do everything I can to help you. That's what I do, you know. I'm a mystic teacher person. And she says, well, who am I? And the mystic goes, <laughs> Oh, of course you would ask that question. 
sort of tilts her head back and says, you know, I can't answer that question, but if you go up the hill just a little bit higher, there's a sage, and that sage knows all things. She's like 160 years old. She'll answer your question. So she climbs very high, gets all the way to the top of the mountain, finds one last cave and goes in, and there's the sage. And the sage is there busy doing what sages do, you know. And she asks this question. She says, excuse me, I have a question about life I was hoping you could answer and that you can help me with. I've been to so many other people. I've climbed this mountain. You're my last hope because I'm at the top of the mountain. Can you answer this question? And the sage says, well, what's your question? And she says, who am I? And the sage howls with laughter. She says, who am I? <laughs> Who's asking? <laughs> yeah, it's not, the, the punchline's not the point, although it's an interesting kind of really deep thinker, only smart people laugh out loud at it. So if you didn't, Who's asking? Who am I? Who's asking? There's this, there's this thing in this allegory that I love, right? First of all, going to the gurus, going to the self-help places, going to all these places to ask these deep questions about yourself, looking outside of yourself and outside of the Lord, like, you know, going to the mystics of the world or the gurus, like, you know, sorry, Dr. Phil and Oprah and, and, and Tom Cruise. That's not the places of our answers, right? So there's this something else about our identity that takes sort of this external search out of it and we have to go internally with our own self and with the Lord. There's, there's that. But then the thing that I really got when I listened to this for the first time was I kind of saw this picture of what I'm drawing in which there's this like climb upward, right? There's this upward climb in life in which we, we feel like we have to get higher and we're seeking something. We're seeking some sort of not only answers, but we're seeking some sort of... Um, connection to God, and we feel like we have to get higher. And we created a language around this, don't we? We say things like, I'm on the mountaintop, you know? Or we say, oh, I'm, uh, we're just, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a high, and, and you know, not that kind of high, but you know, a high. And they, we say these words, and then, but then there's always the eventual what? The, the crash, right? And it goes down. And in life, what do we talk about? We talk about the seasons that were on the mountaintop and we talk about the seasons that were in the valley. And we have these ups and downs, ups and downs in life. And when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, does, it, does anybody with me, you feel that, that reality at life. And we've, we've made it this up and down sort of experience. Well, maybe we can talk about it like this. So, you, us, I'm, I told you I'm really good at drawing. We have this attempt to get to God, don't we? And sometimes we go, we go really hard after God, and we're extending. I had a friend kind of show me this sort of thought. I thought this was pretty brilliant. And sometimes we don't do very much. We're just kind of going through the motions, and it's kind of just a little effort. And sometimes it's kind of medium effort, and sometimes it's big effort, right? But then... On the flip side, there's also like these times in life when we're not really pursuing God and we're just kind of barely kind of like maybe even leaning away from Him in some ways. Or sometimes rebellion really creeps in and we really are far away from God. And some of you have moments in life like that where you can remember where you're like, oh, you were a long ways from Him. And there's a lot of regret about those days. And you feel it sometimes when you think about it. Sometimes you're in the middle, right? You're just kind of like 
And what do we have here? We have sort of this up and down, back and forth. Anybody feel this? Hmm. So, I'm going to put some slides on the screen. We'll kind of go away from my drawing because it gets more complicated. I want to I want to put something on there. We're gonna, we have this up and down, back and forth relationship with guy with Christ. And there's this guy named Graham Cook. He comes up with this idea called visitation and habitation. And visit there's a, there's an understanding of a relationship with God which is kind of framed in this terminology visitation. And then there's another kind that would be your relationship with God in terms of habitation. And visitation is this understanding with God that you can actually come and go from Him, in which you would come to God, you climb a mountain, you get there, but then you can actually leave him and go down the mountain. Or you can pursue him really hard, but then you can backslide and go way over here away from God. And there's this understanding that you can come and go, which means not only can you come to God for answers, but then there are times in life when you can sort of turn your back and you can go away from God. Now, there's some theology and doctrine around this that's kind of accurate, but there's some of it that's not, especially with the understanding that Jesus, who came, and sent the Spirit, there's an indwelling of the Spirit in which He inhabits us that sort of messes up this whole idea of visitation and habitation and all this kind of stuff we'll get into. So, just in case you're wondering, I still really do like the illustration of a mountain. <laughs> there's a scripture that says, right, that there are only a few who find the narrow path, and a lot of us have envisioned like this, this mountain climb. But here's the difference that I want you to really capture, that it's not trying to get to God, this narrow path that maybe goes up a mountain, if you want to claim that illustration and that imagery, isn't to get to God, it's to go with God through the difficult terrain of life, right? So God goes with us up the mountain. We aren't trying to get to God because God isn't someone to be got to. He actually came to us. You see, Christianity is the only faith religion in which the belief system is set up on a God who came to us, which I love and it's brilliant. Every other faith system is about people trying to get to God. And so they set up all these sorts of behaviors and rituals and all these sorts of things to try and get to God when Jesus actually came to us. And he said, guess what? You'll never get to me. You'll never climb high enough. You'll never do enough to get to me. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to come to you. This is what Jesus did. So what does this have to do with the psalm? Not really sure. I just thought it was pretty cool stuff. Um, no, no, of course. There's some, a lot that plays into it. So you have this man, David. In Psalm 51, he's crying out to God to forgive him, to cleanse him of the sin. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the story behind the story, even if you don't know it's the story behind the story of the psalm. Did you catch that? Um, it's the story about adultery and murder. And so, if you don't know the story, we're going to kind of quickly kind of reflect on it, because that's always fun to do. But I want to show you um, the introduction, if you will, to Psalm 51. It's not actually a verse, but when you're reading through the psalm, how they often have an introduction. I want to read you the, the, the introduction of the psalm. For the director of music, a psalm of David. Now, this was written a long, long time ago. Someone wrote this in the psalm book, probably right after David's life, maybe even during David's life. Maybe he wrote it himself. For a director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So the story of David committing adultery with Bathsheba was actually known to the people, known to his people, his kingdom. And they read this psalm or they prayed this prayer, sang it as a song, however they did it. They knew 
about the story of David and Bathsheba, which, you know, for David, that has to be quite humbling. But here's the story that we all know of David and Bathsheba, at least a lot of us do. And you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 to find the story. And it goes like this. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Again, the wife of Uriah. Then David sent messengers to get her. This is where he should have just stopped, right? What are you doing, David? She came to him, and I get, I'm hoping there's a lot of details that are not in here, and he lay with her. That would have been really fast. Golly, people. <laughs> and he lay with her. I, I like the, I, I change it. In the New Testament, it actually says slept, but I went to King James and put lay in there just because I like it. Um, then she went back home. <laughs> the woman conceived and sent word <clears throat> to David saying, I am pregnant. So this is a bad, bad moment for a lot of people, for Bathsheba, for David, for really the whole kingdom. It, it really is. When your king does something so terrible, everybody is, is, is affected by this. So this is what David does. He tries to cover it up. And he actually brings her husband Uriah back home, and he tries to get Uriah to lay with Bathsheba, so Uriah would think that the baby is his, but Uriah is actually a person of great character and honor, and he says, you know, I have all my comrades away in battle. I'm not going to go be with my wife while they're out risking their life, so he doesn't even go home. David gets frustrated because he's not able to cover up the sin, and so long story short, he ends up ordering Uriah to be killed. Uriah now is murdered, and he's got Bathsheba pregnant. And then at the end of 2 Samuel verse 27, 2 Samuel 11 verse 27, one of the most understated sentences in the Bible, it ends with these words, the thing that David said had displeased, or had done, had displeased the Lord. Yeah, I would think so, right? So after this, there's a, there's a remember in the little introduction, it said this is when the, the prophet Nathan came to David. So there's a prophet that God sends, his name's Nathan, and Nathan tells David this parable that illuminates uh, a man and illustrates a man who abuses his power to take something that's not his, which that never happens, right? Nobody abuses power in this world. David actually gets physically upset about this about this parable, and is really upset about this individual who is abusing his power. And Nathan then exclaims in the middle of David's anger about this man, he says, you're the man. He doesn't say, like, you the man, Dave, high five. No, he says, you're the man that is abusing the power. So he's, dis and then he says, what you have done, uh, why have you despised the word of the Lord? This is what Nathan says. And in that moment, the sin finally, the weight of the sin finally hits David. And it, and, it, and it breaks him. And he feels not only the weight of it, but he feels the remorse and the regret. He 
He was done trying to minimize and justify and cover up the sin. And then, I don't know, I like to imagine that that night or maybe the next morning, David writes Psalm 51. And he writes it. And it helps us think about our own sin, but it also helps us think about, think about God and what he thinks of our sin and what he does with it. So I want to give you a few thoughts that David did to respond um, to this. We read this in, in Psalm 51, these four things, I'll put them on screen. The first thing he does, and I don't typically give you four little points, but I'll, be, I'll kind of do these quickly because they're really good. But first he does, he turns, he turns to God. He turns to his only hope. He's helplessly sort of in this spot where he can't turn anywhere else, so he turns to God. This is what he says in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So he says three times, Have mercy on me. He says, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David knows a few things. He's actually talking in New Testament language, by the way, which is really interesting. David has this insight because he's saying things that aren't said in the Old Testament. But he is remembering probably a few verses like in Exodus 34 whenever God is called the God of mercy and gracious, slow to anger, full of steadfast love. So he is, he is quoting some Old Testament, but he knows that there's a redemption available for him. There's a redemption available for him that, that doesn't make any sense, that only God can give. So today we actually know more the mystery of the gospel and mystery of this mercy than David did because of Jesus. We know more because we have the New Testament. We have the, story, the whole story of Christ. So the first thing he's done, he turns, he turns to God. How many people turn to other things whenever they mess up? You know what I'm talking about? You mess up, you make a mistake, and this is not just sin, but you can make it in any category of mistakes. We turn to other things. We turn to other solutions. We turn to things to try and fix it. And what did David do when he tried to fix it? Their first reaction was to cover it up and to try and make sure nobody knew about it. He turned to himself, and he turned to his own resources first. But he finally turns to God. And the second thing he does is he prays, he prays for cleansing. He prays, he prays for cleansing from a sin. Verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You skip down a few verses in verse 7. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, hyssop is, is an actual branch and the priests would dip that branch in blood, and they would go to houses that were diseased, and to pronounce them clean, they would use this branch to sprinkle the blood in the house and say, oh, now the house is clean. So he's like, cleanse me like a priest cleanses a house. David is crying out to God, his ultimate priest, cleanse me, right? So he looks helplessly, if you will, like I can't do anything, I'm going to turn to you. And then he says, cleanse me. Now, when we know Jesus, we know that he's already forgiven us of our sin. But that doesn't mean that there's not a process called sanctification in which we continually are asking God to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So a lot of times when people in the New Testament, they say, well, you know, we abuse the power, the power of forgiveness. We abuse the mercy that Jesus gives us through the blood of the cross. We abuse and we say, you know what, God forgives me anyway. I can just kind of get away with this. I know it's not right, but thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Yet, we read in the scriptures, no, 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 there's, there's still a process of being sanctified, of being cleansed. The third thing he does is he confesses the seriousness of his sin. I love this one. David confesses that his sin is extremely serious. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't, 
He doesn't try and uh, you know, explain it away. Once he gets to this point where he's broken, he says this in verse, verse 3. He can't get the sin out of his mind, basically. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, meaning the tape just keeps playing. Anybody have that kind of, like, man, why did I do that? Why did I do that? He says the exceeding sinfulness of a sin is, is only against, her, against God. Verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He knows what he's done to Bathsheba and Uriah is wrong, but what is more wrong is what he's done to God. And I think that's really sometimes, we feel more regret for what we do to other people than what we do to the Lord, don't we? We feel more pain and regret and, 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 and remorse for how we maybe hurt someone else and we kind of dismiss what we do against the Lord. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't minimize what he does against the Lord. There's no self-justification, no defense, no escape. And so often we don't see our sin as all that big of a deal. And we sort of say, ah, you know, everybody else is doing it. Or, oh, it's, you know, it's not as bad as that person. <laughs> and you literally point at them, right? It, or, or whatever we, we, we do to justify it. And just so you know, that's a visitation relationship in which we think that God isn't all that concerned with us and that we can leave him and depart him whenever we, we really want to. Um, can, I, can I get your permission, which I, I'm going to take it even if you don't give it to me. Um, can I get your permission to go off on an intentional tangent? Yes, thank you. This whole seriousness thing, the seriousness of sin, um, sometimes the smallest things can wreak havoc. We can truly um, take something small. We can minimize it, right? We can, we can minimize the impact of a sin. And we can minimize the impact it's having not only in our life, but what it can have in another person's life. And so we forget what, the, what sin does. Romans 6.23, you guys know it? The wages of sin is death. Gift to God is eternal life. You may think that that little sin that keeps hanging around your life isn't a big deal. You may think it doesn't control you. You know what I'm talking about? You think, oh, that sin, it doesn't control me. I got that. It's no big deal. I know it's wrong, but, you know, it is what it is. So let me ask you, what if that little thing, what if, what if your spouse found out about it? What if, what if your good friends found out about it? What if your workplace found out about that little sin? What happens is that little thing becomes a lot bigger thing and it ends up costing you quite a bit. Sometimes those sins can cost you your marriage. Sometimes they can extreme, create extreme damage within your family. Sometimes those little things that we sort of just let hang around in our life, they end up becoming exposed and they can cost us almost everything. And we talk about sin today because not only is your life, but believe it or not, I believe the life of the church is at stake. Because the enemy is taking people out with the temptation of sin. He is. People are leaving the ministry. People are putting God on the back burner. People are, are, move, are, are, are leaving the church in and, and all sorts of different ways because of what sin does in their life. And it's not because they really want the sin and they prefer the sin over God. What happens is the sin comes and overtakes you with shame and guilt and you feel like you can't come into the presence of the Lord or the presence of people and his people. And so people allow sin to actually overtake their life in such a way that it, it distances themselves from God because sin sucks the desire out of our hearts. 
The enemy makes us feel small and insignificant, even though the scriptures teach us other, otherwise. And Christy and I have talked about this over the years, and we even talk about this in the context of our marriage. Like, we have to fight for our marriage before it needs fighting for. Is anybody with me on that? We have to understand that everyone is vulnerable to the temptation of sin. None of us, none of us are, are immune to that. So the smallest things can wreak havoc, and they can cause all sorts of harm. So that's my little tangent. Number four, are you with me on that? Yes. Number four, he pleads for renewal. So finally, after turning to God's mercy, helplessly praying for forgiveness and cleansing and confessing the seriousness of it, he he goes beyond just asking forgiveness and he actually pleads for renewal. He passionately is committed to being changed by God. Look at this in verse 10, what he says. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now this sounds like a person who really wants to change. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, so many of us, we know the sin, but we don't have this desire to truly change. And we don't really feel the weight of our sin. And when I say the weight of it, I I do want you to hear me. I don't necessarily say you should feel shame and guilt to the point that it, it debilitates you. Here's the thing. We should feel shame for our sin, but shame is this really interesting subject. There are people who grew up in a shame based theology, meaning we think that shame actually beats us into the obedience of the Lord. Listen, shame and guilt never beats us to obey. That's not the way God designed it. God actually leads us, that love leads us to obedience. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. And so if shame and guilt is what makes you feel like you need to behave, that's not the way God designed it. That is a human made up whole thing system that people have created called legalism and other things. So I just want to say that, but I, I, I want to say this, love leads us to obedience, which leads us back to this whole visitation habitation thing, which we're stuttered with. And I'm about finished, and we're going to take communion in a, in a moment, and I'm hopeful that the Lord's going to do some work, and the Holy Spirit's going to speak. But um, we're actually going to do a couple songs of worship in just, just a few minutes. But let me, let me tie this together. Visitation and habitation. What do they have to do with this understanding of forgiveness and sin? Well, let me just throw you a few thoughts on there. You can go over here to Visitation. See if this makes sense, and maybe this isn't going to be you, but you're going to understand this happens in the world. And then you're going to say, maybe I do fit in that in a little bit. In visitation understanding of our relationship with God, some people feel like they have to go and visit a priest and confess when they have to deal with their sin, right? Some people feel they have to pay a penance, meaning they have to go climb a mountain. They have to go on a pilgrimage. They have to do something to make up for the sin that they've committed. Some people feel they've got to outweigh the bad with the good, and so or. So, so they want to make sure that they've got more good happening than bad. And so, uh, and then, th- doesn't this create an up and down, back and forth sort of understanding of a relationship with God? You're just trying to make up for the sin in your life. You're trying to do what needs to be done in order to feel righteous in some ways. But here's habitation. Habitation, meaning Jesus is inhabited. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And when the Spirit is with us, when Jesus never leaves us, when God never leaves us, when we aren't going back and forth, leaving him in some ways, mentally and in our heart and feeling like we can disengage with God and engage in sin. When we have God with us, 
and he's indwelling us, guess what sin feels like? Disgusting. It disgusts us and it disrupts who we're becoming. And we feel it and the weight hits us square in the chest. And we're like, this sin has to get out of my life because it's messing up the person God's created me to be. Whenever we live in visitation, we can actually handle the sin because we where, where are we? We're away from God. We're in the valley. We're not on the mountaintop. We're going away from, we can, we can justify the place we are in our head, but whenever that place never changed and Jesus is always with us and God is always with us because he inhabits us, guess what? Sin comes face to face with the holiest creator of the world, right? The creator of the world, the holy person of Jesus, and it disgusts us and it disrupts who we're becoming. You can't go, you can't visit anywhere, pay enough, climb high enough, or do enough to be forgiven in a habitation understanding. The only thing you can do, the only thing you can do is humbly turn to him for cleansing and renewal. Because, because what can wash away our sins? What's the song? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the only thing. Habitation. Letting Jesus inhabit us is what transforms us. Because here's what visitation does with sin. It's a cycle of history repeating itself. Up and down, back and forth. The sin that you think you just beat, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again. You have to let the inhabiting power of the Holy Spirit cleanse you of that sin, right? And then you have to ask for God to renew you to the person he's called you to be. Visitation. We don't try and change. We just try and make up for the sins we commit. Anybody hear that? We don't try and change. We just try and make up for the sins we commit. That's what visitation is. Habitation actually transforms us. So when Nathan came to David and spoke into his life, David finally said this prayer, and I love it, and I already read part of it, but Right at kind of the heart of Psalm 51, I'll put it on screen. Have mercy on me, O God, for your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. To end our time together, uh, I just want to give us a little bit longer time to respond today. We're going to have a couple songs. We're going to have communion. And, and communion is really a powerful way to examine our hearts. The communion table is for the believer, and it's really for us to come and to say, you know, I'm not only going to remember the body and the blood that was spilled for me, but I'm also going to examine myself and the things in my life that I need to confess to the Lord. And so for some of us, that's what we're going to do before we come to the communion table. For others, I feel like we went really fast today, by the way. I feel like we've said a lot, and I just want to say, Holy Spirit, would you just calm us so we can hear right now? Some of us need a Psalm 51 moment in which we are come face to face with the weight of our brokenness and our sin, and we say, God, I just want, I want to turn to you. I want to confess the seriousness of my sin, and I want to be renewed today. Some of us need that. And then I, I would go as far to say that some of us in this room, we need Jesus. That's all we need. The thing you need in your life is Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's what you need. And you've been trying to figure it out on your own, and you've been trying to reconcile your beliefs, and you've been trying to reconcile all this stuff. And I just want to say to you today, if you need Jesus to be your Savior, you need to confess him as Lord, and you want to have assurance 
and your salvation and in your eternity. It comes by two things. By believing in Jesus as the Son of God, confessing him as Lord, and by believing that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's what it says in Romans. If you can believe that Jesus is Lord, and you can confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and believe that, Jesus, or that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And today, I'm praying that maybe someone in here needs salvation, and that you would respond by saying yes to God for the first time. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads for just a moment. In a moment, when we take communion, I, 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 I want to give you a little bit of instruction with your heads bowed. We've put communion on, the, on your left side, on the left side of the stage, and in the back of the room, and up in the balcony. But the right side of the stage does not have communion because it's intended for anybody that needs to come and just be at the altar today, to come and be at the altar before you take communion, to examine your heart. And so if you want to come today and pray, you can but I want to invite anybody in here to that last thing I just mentioned, that if you need to confess Jesus as Lord, if you want to receive his gift of salvation today, I want to invite you to do so. And here's how we're going to do it. We don't do this every week, but when we do it, we do it with intention. But if today you want to receive Jesus into your life, I want to help you do that. I believe it's the most incredible, beautiful, and courageous thing that we can do in life is just trust the Lord with who we are, but if today you want to do that, if you want to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I just want you to know that you can stop trying to get to God and know that God came to you. So if you want to receive his love, you can just raise your hand in just a moment. I'm going to count to three. You can just lift your hand up right where you're at. If you say, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior today, would you do that? by Just having the courage to just lift your hand where you're at. No one's looking around. Just me. As I say, one, two, three, just lift your hand. Just your hand wherever you're at. I see you. I see you. Praise Jesus, yes. Well, here, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can just repeat this prayer. The prayer isn't anything out of Scripture. It's not a specific prayer. It's just a prayer that represents a heart that says, I want to confess Him as Lord, commit my life to Him. So I'm going to just say a prayer. You can repeat it. And church, would you join us and pray this prayer together? Say, God, I want to surrender my life to you. I confess my need for you. I confess that I've sinned. I ask for forgiveness and cleansing. From this day forward, you are Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, that's so incredible. I would say that was your first time and you meant it with everything of who you are. You're a believer. You're a follower of Jesus. And I'd love to talk to you today. So uh, during worship, at the end, come find me. I'll be right over here. But we're going to worship and we're going to pray. This altar over here is open. We have a little bit of time. So you don't feel the need to come and line up a community. You can wait till the kind of crowd sort of clears if you want. You can come and line up if you want. Freedom, right? And we're going to sing. Would you stand with us? Lord, we pray that as we stand, that, Lord, this time is yours.
that, Lord, whatever sin we may have in our life, that we'll deal with it today, and that, Lord, we'll give it to you and trust you with it and say, Lord, we can't do it. We can't fix it. We're going to justify it and minimize it, but, Lord, we want to declare today that, Lord, you're king, and only you can cleanse us and renew us. So, Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.